This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new movies in cinemas or on streaming services and compares them to films from days gone by, either due to a director or a star, a genre, or maybe some other element of the film that we find interesting and has a lot of other connective tissue to other titles. And uh, my name is Stephen Cook, and uh, I'm a multimedia journalist in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today, our connective tissue is the city of Toronto. We're going to look at the new Pixar film, Turning Red, which is very lovingly and obviously set in Toronto. And we're going to look at a lot of other films that uh, take place in uh, the biggest metropolis in the country and a city that we sometimes love and sometimes hate. So, Stephen, regular listeners to Lends Me Your Ears will probably know I used to work in film production in Toronto, a a film that I almost always love, and I'll say that right off the top. A film that you almost always love. A a film, a a city I almost (laughs) always love. It's a film, it's a city, it's both today, we're talking about it. Um, You know, and there was a line producer I used to work with, this is in the era of, like, movies of the week, a lot of television I worked on, a lot of shows that no one will have ever ever seen um, or remember, but uh, there was a line producer I used to work with, he used to say, if an American... American production, American film is coming to shoot here. There's something wrong with it. Um, you know, but I think that films like Goodwill Hunting and, and X-Men, which I actually worked on for a number of weeks, um, they put an end to that talk. The tradition, you know, continues now. Guillermo del Toro likes to shoot a lot of his movies in Toronto. He made Crimson Peak and The Shape of Water and Nightmare Alley, which we recently talked about on this podcast. Um, but yeah, it used to be that Toronto was just a small place that, uh, you know, a city that films were made, a Canadian film sometimes, but but then vanished, and medium-sized American films were pretending it was some generic American metropolis, and that still happens. You know, a lot of streaming TV gets shot in Toronto, shows like Star Trek Discovery and The Boys and The Umbrella Academy and Station Eleven, but... Um, In the last 20 years or so, and maybe even longer than that, Toronto has starred as Toronto more regularly. So that's more or less what we're doing today. We've chosen films to watch that uh, Toronto is playing itself. Uh, which is uh, which is which is great. I mean, you know, and and uh, you know, I think maybe I was trying to think of the first movie I saw where Toronto played Toronto, and it was probably Strange Brew. Um, even <laughs> yes. though it doesn't make such a big deal about it, it's more just like a generic Canadian city. But you, and I think in one shot you can see the uh, the CN Tower in the background. Well, was that the first one you saw, or was there something earlier than that? It was probably something by Cronenberg. I would oh, have to, yeah. I'd have to say, um, you know, he, he was kind of. I'm trying to think, like probably the first auteur to to really kind of make Toronto stand out in a unique way and take advantage of its particular kind of you know mid 20th century architecture in 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 and make it seem so oppressive and uh, and foreboding, which uh, which in a way that only he can do. Going right back to the his early kind of almost student films, if you will. Uh, and uh, and and cer- certainly, Strange Brew was a big one. Although a lot of it was shot in Hamilton, and a friend of mine 
actually gave me the Hamilton film location tour when I visited Hamilton once, and we drove by like the old train station that they blew up in the Long Kiss Goodnight, for example. Oh yeah, the big hill where the the van, the van from the Elsinore Brewery comes screaming down. In I think it goes, I think it comes screaming down this hill in Hamilton because of course Hamilton's built on this escarpment. And so the van comes screaming down a hill in Hamilton and then is shown going into Lake Ontario off a pier in Toronto. That's talk about cutting between locations. Uh, and, and that happens a lot uh, in films with, you know, they'll, 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 they will shoot in Toronto, but obviously it's probably more convenient to do some stuff maybe in Kitchener or, or, you know, Guelph, I don't know, sure, <laughs> Peterborough, sure. some of the, some of the surrounding locations where you can get like urban looking street scenes without having to fork over the dough it cost to film in, in downtown Toronto. Yeah, and uh, Cronenberg has done that a lot, obviously, yeah. with um, uh, uh, Dead Zone was shot around Toronto. Uh, one of the locations of the Dead Zone actually was a house in a, in a, in a sort of old farm where I've, I've actually used been in, on that location working on another show. Um, and uh, A History of Violence was shot in small town around in the 905, pretty much. So, yeah, so... Um, Today, we're talking about the new Pixar animated movie, Turning Red, and it qualifies 100%. Um, and it is a, it's, it's a delightful film. It's a film I really enjoyed, maybe more than, I mean, Pixar has a pretty good record uh, for, for the quality, but this is one I enjoyed maybe more than any in the last 10 years, and that's probably at least partly due to its setting. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's about a, a girl, a 13-year-old in the uh, Toronto's Chinese community. Chinatown really looks like Chinatown. Um, and it's uh, she's uh, Mei and Lee. She's played by Rosalie Chang or voiced by Lo- Rosalie Chang. And uh, it's set in 2002. And uh, she loves her mom, Ming, played by Sh- Sandra Oh. Uh, and has worked her whole life to earn her approval, but she's into this super hot boy band, Four Town, and starting to notice other boys as well. So, but and then what happens is as she hits puberty, she turns into a giant red panda. So, you know, immediately I thought, oh, this is just a, it's like in, you know, a little bit like the X Men. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a, it's a little bit like a, um, you know, a metaphor for for a coming-of-age metaphor. But in fact, I think the film is actually a more about the generational schism and about that relationship between mother and daughter and the things that the previous generation, uh, the secrets that they hide from their, 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 the next generation, and maybe also the trauma that they try to hide and, and can't. Like, they can't hide that. And I felt like this was a super sophisticated film in a lot of ways, while being also enormously entertaining uh fun and uh and yeah and and with a great sense of location oh yeah it was a wonderful film i i just thoroughly enjoyed it i mean i kind of wonder uh uh, domi shi the director i wonder you know if she had to fight to to make it this location specific because that is very unusual for a pixar film but it's obviously she's from toronto this is her uh cultural background these are her neighborhoods this is you know, this is her story in so many ways. And uh, to for, for Disney Pixar, the massive conglomerate that it is, to allow her to make something that's so personal. I mean, I, it would have been nice to see in the theater, obviously, because the design and the look of the film is at once both super realistic in the way it depicts downtown Toronto, but also like just a lovingly crafted when, in terms of like the temple and, and the panda is such a great looking character, you know, just so well um, realized. Um, and I just, you know, for, for them to allow her to make something that specific for, for you know, for a general audience is is a pretty remarkable achievement. So I kind of wonder, you know, 
did they just green light all of that from the get go, or if there what kind of struggle there was to put that uh, on the screen? It's a good question. You know, there is there is a making of sort of doc that goes with the film on Disney Plus, and uh, they but most of it is just during production, like how these different people got together. A lot of women working on the show, which is great, and uh, she hired you know in the production design and in various elements, and so we hear from all of them, and we hear a little bit about their lives and what they brought to making this very collaborative effort uh, sing and uh, uh, you know it is I mean not to obviously we're talking about film set in Toronto where Toronto is playing Toronto today uh, and the joy for me of course was seeing watching I mean the scenes where the, the where uh, the panda is jumping over the the rooftops and uh, the streetcars and even the convenience stores and of course the the sky dome where where four town is going to play <laughs> yes. and why does four town actually have five members I mean what's going on with that anyway there there's great there's a lot of a lot of things to enjoy but um, but yeah for me you know I I think. Honestly, one of the greatest moments for me, and this isn't a huge spoiler, I won't say much more than this, but the film also qualifies as a monster movie, as a kaiju movie yes. <laughs> by the end, which I thought was awesome. Yeah, I didn't know it was going to go that far. You know, spoiler alert, you know, everything is building towards this big moment at the Sky Dome. And yes, I call it the Sky Dome. Uh, yeah, everyone like, does who, who's been there long enough. Just like yeah. people still call it. The Metro Center in Halifax, you know, <laughs> Scotiabank Center. Pooey. Um, I just lost our sponsorship now. Um, but, but it's like, it, it's the Sky Dome. You know, <laughs> I, anybody who gets a bill from Rogers has no desire to call it the Rogers Center or whatever. Um, and, and uh, you know, th- that was a big surprise for me as well. That's the thing. There were so, so many surprises in, in this film if you just go in cold and, and don't uh, read up too much on it. But, uh, but uh, certainly I knew enough about the fact that it was so steeped in uh, Chinese Canadian culture and that, that uh, the multi-generational uh, aspect of the film was very pronounced. I mean, when the grandmother and the aunties show up and that just, that also seems very specific to, uh, to the family, but also like, just such a beautiful and, and funny moment. They, they just inject this really interesting character dynamic when they show up and the, gr- the relationship between the grandmother and the, the mom is seen as being kind of overbearing voiced by Sandra. Oh, quite wonderful performance uh, as being very overbearing and perfectionist and in trying to get her daughter, you know, further ahead in life, even though she's just, you know, she's just a teenager, like junior high age. And, um, and then you see the grandmother show up and you just, <laughs> see how much more ratcheted up things are between the mother and the grandmother. I just love that, that touch. And, um, you know, it's just, uh, it's just so wonderfully, uh, wonderfully executed. And, and, uh, I, th- I think, you know, relatable beyond the, the certain cultural specificities of, of the presentation here, but I think you can appreciate it on, on both of those levels. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I, yeah, it's that whole, you know, the challenges of tradition versus modernity, the, the ge- generational schisms, familial responsibility versus a youthful enthusiasm and the, the work that uh, parents have to do in order to allow their kids to make their own mistakes, you know, and to learn about the world through their own experience and also to allow them the room to, to, as we all know, when you're a teenager, your group of friends are the most important people in your life and your parents kind of fade into the background. (laughs) And that's this story really educates or um, elaborates on that and, and, uh, and illustrates what that's like, the the beginnings of that. And I felt it did that, did that so well. Yeah, it's true because it, it, you know, it takes a long time to get to know your parents, you know, and for them to be comfortable to maybe reveal things about their life that they, 
you know, when you're maybe when you're 18 or 20 that they wouldn't have told you when you were 12. And uh, to find out, you know, what they were really like at a younger age, you know, you often do not discover that kind of knowledge until uh, until much later in life. And, and, and I love that those kind of slow reveals that uh, that happen here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, one of the things that I mentioned that sort of making of doc that is included on Disney Plus uh, of Turning Red and um, there it includes a movie title idea board early in the production process and I wanted to say some of the titles are just genius. I mean, Turning Red is a perfect title, but I would have been okay with Notorious RPG, which is Red Panda Girl, oh, uh, Red to Me, which was one of the other ones, or My Neighbor Toronto, provided it was the Canadian <laughs> spelling. <laughs> yeah, that's for any Miyazaki fans out there. Oh, My Neighbor Toronto. <laughs> Very, very, uh, obviously that would be just for us if they yeah. picked that. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. Uh, I also like the fact that it's a, it's a, a Pixar film that acknowledges sexuality in a way that uh, I, I'm trying to, th- I'm, I'm sure it's in there before, but but it seems very pronounced in, in an interesting way here in a way that it hasn't been in previous Pixar films. So it is a, a big step forward in, in so many ways in that regard as well. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, though, interestingly, apparently there was more explicit, you know, same-sex connection within the film between characters, but that uh, Disney tried to, to put their foot down about that. And then some of the creative staff of the film, uh, you know, spoke up and said, hey, they weren't cool with that. And so there's been some conversation online. I actually don't know where it's at right now, but I remember reading around the week of release that this this uh, this came out, that uh, there was more, there was even more going on on the film than we get to see. Well, I'm, I'm glad they got to go as far as they did in, in those terms, but it, yeah, it makes sense that, that there's more possibilities and, and who knows, maybe it'll be a sequel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I would be up for that totally. Um, so let's move on to another film that is absolutely in love with Toronto, and that is Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the World from 2010. Uh, it is from the Brian Lee O'Malley graphic novels, and uh, of course, uh, Brian Lee O'Malley, or Mal as he is known to his chums, he was a Haligonian for a while. Um, he worked on the original graphic novels while he lived here in Halifax, and uh, I knew him a little bit uh, through the sort of local art scene. Um, really nice guy, very sort of soft-spoken and... Uh, uh, but with a great sense of humor, which comes through in his comics. Now, um, the backstory of Scott Pilgrim, for those who haven't seen it, it's he's an early 20-something dude living in Toronto. He doesn't have a job, but he plays bass in a rock band. He shares an apartment with his friend Wallace, who happens to be gay. There's only one bed, so that's a little cozy, but everyone seems cool with it. Um, Scott is dating a 17-year-old high school student named Knives, uh, which all of his friends thinks is totally lame. Uh, but then he meets Ramona, who is new in town and she rocks his world but what he'll need to do is break up with knives if he's going to date Ramona uh, and that's difficult for him because he doesn't like to he, he just shirks responsibility uh, plus in order to date Ramona he has to defeat her seven evil exes in mortal combat so there is a deep uh, and abiding passion for video games here certainly for combat sort of video games um, and uh, and that is brought into the visual aesthetic of the film in a way that I can't think of another film that does it quite as well or as interestingly as um, Edgar Wright does for Scott Pilgrim vs. the World I remember watching this film when it first came out and I was such a fan of the comics I felt very connected to them they know the Toronto thing as well you know all those Toronto locations that are really in the comic itself and uh and I remember being a little disappointed first off, and I remember the film didn't do very well. But then 
in recent years, I've rewatched it, and the film stands on its own, you know, in a way that is is really joyous, and it has a stellar cast. I right, you know, it's one of those movies where everyone in the cast went on to huge, huge things afterwards, and so it's it's really it's a terrific, it's a brat pack movie for the you know 2010s, I guess. Yeah, the the video game Breakfast Club of uh, of its time. Yes, the, the uh, yeah the unabashed enthusiasm it has for comics, for video games, for music, for uh, you know just uh, finding your own lane in life. Uh, it's 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 there from start to finish. I have no idea why this didn't uh, find a bigger audience at the time, but it's this is I think this is my third time through the film, and it, it's it was just as much of a treat uh, this time as it has been in the past, and and. Uh, I you know I think I think I felt kind of the same way as you maybe the first time through by comparing it a little too closely to the comic that maybe Michael Sarah didn't necessarily feel like the right fit uh, for the character because he's so laconic and and uh, kind of withdrawn in a way uh, but but uh, you know his performance has grown on me and there are things I I do like about it and because uh, and, I, I don't really have an issue with him in other things uh, necessarily so. Uh, it's just a, a slightly awkward fit that he somehow, you know, makes it his own here. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, the Halifax connection is that uh, Scott Pilgrim is named after a Plum Tree song. Uh, Halifax indie band uh, Plum Tree wrote the song Scott Pilgrim, which Brian Lee O'Malley took for the name of the character in his comic. Uh, and uh, and I my other note is I once played Dance Dance Revolution at his house with uh, Hope Larson in uh, in Mount Uniac. Oh, yeah. So that's my personal connection. <laughs> and, cool. you know, encountered each other a few times after that. But that's my, my one sort of close uh, brush with uh, Scott Pilgrim fame, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, they used to live, they actually had an apartment on um, Oxford Street for a while as well. That was when I first met them. But uh, And they did some work for the coast where I was working at the time. Um, but, uh, yeah, watching the film again, Again, a few things really struck me. Um, first off, the blue and pink and green hair on Ramona yes. Flowers, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Uh, it's really a thing now. And who knew that Scott Pilgrim would be a fashion predictor? Um, and and then, of course, that casting I mentioned. I mean, Aubrey Plaza, who is now beloved and somewhat kooky presence on film and in pictures like The Little Hours and Ingrid Goes West, which are two of my favorites, um, and television in Parks and Rec, or the former Human Torch, Chris Evans, who went on to become Captain America in the MCU, and he's so good in Knives Out recently, or Anna Kendrick, Oscar-nominated, frequently singing movie star and author. Uh, obviously, Winstead, who was in 10 Cloverfield Lane and the recent Harley Quinn movie, and that's just for starters. You also got Academy Award-winning Brie Larson, also became a superhero, Captain Marvel, Alison Pill, who's I'm recently watching in the Picard show, uh, Michael Sarah, you mentioned. I mean, it's... A total joy, all of that. And something else I noticed, and this will be very nerdy for those out there. Uh, Wright uses sound effects from the Flash Gordon movie in his movie. <laughs> and I know, I, I don't know how I missed those the first time out, but watching it again, it was very clear he borrowed cues from the Mike Hodges 1980 wow. film. And I know this because I have enjoyed the soundtrack for that film for years, composed by Queen, and includes chunks of dialogue and sound design and songs from the film. And yeah, there is definitely Flash Gordon soundtrack stuff going on, which I absolutely adored in Scott Pilgrim. Oh, and, and the Toronto connections, the Toronto scenes, Honest Ed's, Lee's Palace, Casa Loma, all major locations. Uh, pizza, pizza. Yeah, lots of pizza, pizza. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I, I will never darken their door, but it's it's kind of fun to see it in a movie. I used to say that it was a blight on the city because that bright orange sign was so ugly, but I now have a little bit of nostalgia Well, the pizza's pretty ugly, too, so... Um. <laughs> Darn it! Lost another sponsor. There we go. Um, the Casa Loma stuff is great. They're they're filming an action film there with um, Chris Evans' character, the super obnoxious uh, skateboarding movie star Lucas Lee, who you know must be a, a nod to Jason Lee in some some regard somehow. And uh, you know, the, the, there's that that whole they make movies in Toronto kind of thing, and and uh, of course they're filming some big action film in at Casa Loma and they've got a fake backdrop that looks like the New York skyline <laughs> so, to fill in for Toronto and uh, that that whole sequence is is terrific and uh, another nice little in joke uh, Canadian music in joke is that uh, when um, uh, Brie Larson's band I can't remember her character's name is Envy not and anyway the Brie Larson's character her band is playing at Lee's Palace and Todd her, her new boyfriend, who's also the bass player, the super vegan, played by former Superman, Brandon Ruth. Right. Um, he's playing Chris Murphy's bass. Chris Murphy from Sloan. That's oh, yeah. his classic red, white striped bass. Because I guess he helped some of the people, uh, because he, he he's a talented, multi-talented musician, and he plays drums, guitar, bass. Um, I guess he helped some of the uh, cast members with their uh, musical skills, either actually learning to play or at least looking like they know how to play. Um on on uh, camera so he's got a nice sort of behind the scenes role on this film as well hi and welcome back to lens me your ears and today we're looking at films that are set in toronto uh we started off with turning red the, the new disney pixar film and it's so cool to have an anim- an animated film you know they they could have set that anywhere and yet they chose to located in Toronto and be very specific about where it's set. And uh, we're going to see some more of that in some of the films that are coming up. Uh, none of them animated, but uh, but films that uh, maybe we got very animated about. But we're going to start, uh, we're going to delve back into the 1970s. And there, there were a fair number of films shot in Toronto in the 70s. Uh, some of the topics, uh, some of the titles that we talked about uh, are things like uh, Going Down the Road, about a couple of Cape Bretoners who go to the big city in Toronto and uh, where the streets are paved with gold. We're <laughs> looking for, looking for their fortune or, or face off the the great 70s hockey movie um which uh was parodied by sctv <laughs> so you know you know it uh, it uh, reached some sort of critical mass if sctv did a parody of it it's kind of about a hockey player who falls in love with kind of a hippie folk singer and and they're kind of uh odd and strange relationship a, a strange relationship and and uh, and this film was another kind of 70s staple uh, at the start of the so-called tax shelter years where uh massive uh, incentives were, were presented to productions that shot in Canada. And usually these were made in, in Toronto or in Ontario, because of course that's where the facilities were. That's where there were sound stages and actors and, and uh, creative teams and uh, technical crews and so on. And, and so there were a lot of largely forgettable <laughs> movies that were made, uh, you know, in Canada in this time. And, and some of them, some of them are worth checking out or seeking out if you can find them. There's a film called uh, High Point that I tried to find a copy of uh, before we started this show. It stars Richard Harris, but it's also got Christopher Plummer and it's an outrageous action comedy. There's a trailer for it on uh, YouTube that just makes it look like a ball of fun uh, with uh, including somebody falling off the CN Tower is kind of a big uh, dramatic uh, sequence. And uh, the CN Tower is actually on the poster for the film. So they weren't making any bones about where that was set. Um, you know, and- I actually wanted to start to interrupt, but I I, oh, sure. I saw uh, uh, that I was looking around um, 
the uh, the the Toronto, I guess Toronto based um, uh, store for DVDs and uh, um, uh, unobstructed view where they have yes. a contract with Criterion, so they sell Criterion. They're basically a Criterion's agent in Canada. Uh, they have a bunch of other older. Uh, DVDs, you know, like uh, vintage DVDs as well, and um, and new releases, a lot of them from Kino, and and that is available. Yes. I saw that it was getting a, or it had received a Blu-ray release, which kind of blew my mind because I was trying to think who's the audience for this thing. But besides me, uh, <laughs> yeah, obviously. besides us. But I'm glad that it's out there, and I'm gonna gonna have to track a copy down uh, either through obstru- Obstructed View or somewhere else. And uh, I mean, if you're at all interested in this period, it's a fascinating era. And of course, some of, there was some of that happened on the East Coast as well. Um, there were producers out here that. Were were able to take advantage of of that kind of new funding situation uh, in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, there's a website or a blog called Exploitation that goes deep into, because of course a lot of these films are genre films, you know, horror movies, Visiting Hours uh, with Lenora Zan, who we will see in a film <laughs> later, a Nova Scotia actor and politician, um, was in Visiting Hours with William Shatner. Uh, that's out on Blu-ray. Uh, in a, you can find it in a bargain bin somewhere, I'm sure. Um, and this film, The Silent Partner, uh, is, uh, is one we're going to talk about because it was it actually kind of a, not just a hit, but a critically acclaimed hit. Even even though it kind of comes out of that tax shelter period, uh, it you know had uh, some pretty decent creative uh, talent behind the camera. Uh, a director named Daryl Duke uh, teamed up with the screenwriter Curtis Hansen, who would go on to make L.A. Confidential, among other films. The uh, film we talked about last time, uh, Bad Influence. Yes, that's right, with uh, the David Kep uh, screenplay. And... Uh, and then uh, got a pretty good top-of-the-line uh, cast with uh, Elliot Gould, who was, uh, of course, a huge star in the 1970s, uh, and uh, Christopher Plummer and Susanna York, British actor who uh, had, a, had a pretty remarkable career herself. So it's, uh, you know, and, and John Candy in one of his, not his earliest screen role, but certainly one of his earliest roles before SCTV became a household name. And, uh, you know, he plays one of the co-workers in this bank where Elliot Gould is a teller. And uh, one day at work, he finds a note, a uh, crumpled up note saying, I've got a gun, give me all your money. And uh, he becomes aware that uh, somebody is casing the joint, as it were, and plans to um, plans to rob the bank. So uh, with, uh, with the knowledge that this is going to happen and uh, some other clues that lead him to believe that the guy playing the mall Santa Claus in the Eaton Center, where a lot of this film takes place in downtown Toronto, uh, you know, he comes up with a plan to slowly kind of squirrel away some cash from the bank and then uh, claim it as his own when the robbery happens. And of course, he doesn't realize that uh, the guy planning to hold up the bank is no schmuck. This is a uh, Christopher Plummer, uh, who's a, a devious, uh, incredibly intelligent and very sadistic uh, character who uh, he has to butt heads with. Of course, Elliot Gould's uh, teller character is uh, no dummy either, but it's a real battle of wills uh, once uh, things start going down. And it's a very effective thriller, uh, a lot more savage and nasty than you might expect it would be. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's a real thrill to watch it again. I, the first time I saw it actually was on CBC TV. I saw a broadcast version of it, which cut out a lot of the violence and nudity, which, uh, which occurs uh, in this film. So uh, later I saw it on maybe VHS or something and, and realized that you know, how intense this film really is compared to the broadcast version. And uh, it's a real treat to revisit again. It's been remastered and, uh, and it's available online. Yeah, I had seen it also once years ago, but had very little memory of it. It might have been on television, and like you. Um, but watching it again, I realized it really holds up. And and I don't know if um, IMDb trivia is to be believed, but apparently it claims that um, uh, 
uh, Elliot Gould showed the film to Alfred Hitchcock, and Hitchcock loved it. Uh, so, I mean, if that is true, then, you know, that says something about the film. Yeah, one of the things I really liked about it is is Gould's uh, bank teller, Miles, starts as this very kind of like, he's very milk toast, very sort of, you know, unassuming kind of bookish sort. He's a collector of tropical fish. He's the kind of guy who his married boss expects him to act as a companion to this other colleague, Julie, played by Susanna York, as you mentioned, who's having an affair with said boss. Like, he just gets stepped on and pushed around. But then as he pieces together this potential robbery and 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 kind of has to deal with the after effects of that, you realize how smart and how smooth he actually is. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of great character work in this. And yes, it is pretty intense. Uh, you know, I think this must have scandalized uh, Christopher Plummer's Sound of Music fans because <laughs> he is really, he is truly evil here. And um, and I really liked how York is so good as as the woman trying to make sense of the mixed signals that she's getting from Gould's character. Uh, and also quite good in it is Celine Lomez, an actor who I didn't know from, I don't know if I've ever seen her in anything. She's Elaine who is, she's a, a French-Canadian actor who uh, Miles gets involved with after the death of his ailing father. And she plays an important role later on um yeah i and 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 you know i liked the r-rated stuff i liked how how uh you know gritty it was and i really as with the other films we're talking about full marks for the toronto locations obviously the eaton center plays a big role it other than the the shops and the design it hasn't really changed that much uh and we get to see city hall and various streets in downtown toronto apparently the building that miles lives in has been torn down it's near sherburn and bloor um but uh yeah a lot of uh a lot of Toronto street scenes at night. Yeah, it's uh, it's really worth uh, hunting down. I, I just realized that I watched it on TCM, uh, but uh, there was a remastered edition that's been released uh, on uh, home video, and that might be available on some streaming services. Uh, and it uh, it looks so much better, miles better, even than the uh, version that uh, I first saw either on VHS or broadcast TV uh, way back when. And and Celine Lomez is, is an interesting presence, and, and she only made one sort of other film of note, which was another Canadian tax shelter horror movie called Plague, sort of a pandemic movie from, from the late 70s. Uh, and prior to this, she'd mostly been in these kind of Quebec sexploitation <laughs> films. So, uh, and then she kind of returns to obscurity after this, and it's, it's kind of a shame. Yeah, well, she's great in it, and it was real fun to revisit uh, The Silent Partner. Now, speaking as I was about Toronto at night, let's talk about Exotica, which is on Criterion. Speaking Um, of sexploitation. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny to think that Canadian films in the 90s were notable for their kink. We were kind of like the kinky cinema for a while there, thanks to, you know, well, uh, Cronenberg and and the such. But Adam McGoyan had his hand in there as well. Uh, Interestingly, of course, um, Exotic is also produced by Camelia Freiberg, who is a Nova Scotia resident now, uh, lives on the South Shore. And uh, uh, she went on to produce other films of his as well. But... um, yeah, they. Uh, I think there's an argument to be made that Agoyan, Cronenberg, and Bruce McDonald are maybe the most Toronto-loving filmmakers, and uh, we're going to talk about you know uh, a McDonald film a little later on. Um, this one has a real, and I, I'm almost reluctant to call it this, but there's a Euro sort of uh, sexiness to it. Um, you know, it's and of course it, it, it utilizes the most European of all Canadian musicians, Leonard Cohen, uh, for the music that a dancer chooses as their strip routine. Uh, and Leonard Cohen features again in another Canadian film we'll be talking about. But uh, anyway, the action in this film takes place mostly in Exotica 
Veronica, a, a fictionalized Toronto strip club where Elias Cateus's Eric is the DJ. It's an unusual kind of strip club. They play a lot of trip hop and sort of weird, sort of jungly kind of sounds, bird call and that kind of thing. Mia Kirshner is Christina, one of the dancers. She's fond of dressing as a schoolgirl, uh, and she's the one who likes uh, Cohen's Everybody Knows. Uh, it turns out that Eric and Christina used to have a thing, but now Eric is with Zoe, the club's owner, um, But and she's pregnant, but clearly Eric's not over Christina, and she has to watch her dance every night. And that's how Francis, played by Bruce Greenwood, who works for Revenue Canada, he shows up there, and he, he has a connection with Christina, and he likes to visit the club and get personal dances from her. Um, but it's not hard to see that Francis has some kind of trauma he's trying to manage. Uh, he's also auditing a, a, a gentleman's exotic pet business, uh, Thomas Pinto, played um, by Don McKellar. And, uh, and, and Thomas is definitely up to something. We see him smuggle an egg in when he returns from a trip. Uh, meanwhile, Francis keeps asking his niece, Tracy, played by Sarah Pauly, to come over to his place and play piano while he goes to Exotica. There's a lot of weird stuff going on here, and it takes a while to understand all the connections between the characters. You know, uh, there is a mood created here, a lot of, you know, men desiring, sexualizing younger women. There's uh, this parallel of the Exotics pet store and a strip club called Exotica, and sort of a sense of the, the animal nature, the desire of, of, of people um, sublimating a lot of what's going on. There's a lot of unhappiness. There's a sense that misery loves company in this film. But uh, I um, I enjoyed it, revisiting it, I gotta say. There were a lot of things about it I liked. Um, you know, that mood and that intensity and that 90s feel to it, a lot of that coming through in the music. Um, and... Uh, yeah, and I I, uh, I I liked uh I liked I like Don McKellar. He's typically jittery. I like the the, <laughs> the the performances uh generally. Yeah, I mean it was it was uh it, it it still held up, I think. Yeah, I I enjoyed this more the second time around than I did when I first saw it, which is when it first came out. I think I saw it at the Oxford Theater. Uh it might have even been an Atlantic Film Festival presentation and uh it uh it left me a little cold the first time I saw it and uh, this time around, I, I definitely warmed up to it a lot more. Maybe because you know, all these years later. I mean, that was 1994 when it opened. I think a lot. I know a bit more about how adults work <laughs> and their inner workings. And maybe uh, at the time that I saw this, I was not maybe of the right sort of mental age to fully appreciate uh, you know what this film has to say about human nature, human desire, and human identity. And there's there's a lot going on. Uh, beneath the surface here, which is, you know, the case in pretty much any Adam Agoyan, uh film. You really have to, to pay close attention to read the characters and, and, uh, and what, they're, what they're doing. And the psychological aspect of his films is so important, and it was not like any film I'd seen up to that point. And, in fact, it's in, worth mentioning that uh, Roger Ebert uh, gave this four to four stars and includes it on his great movies uh, list and in one of his great movies books. So, uh, you know, th there was definitely more going on than meets the eye in this film and and uh and i feel like uh repeated viewings definitely help you pick up on a lot more of those signals yeah and, and as far as the toronto love goes uh exotica is on dalhousie street which is near queen street east and church uh so sort of east of young um the building is still there i can't imagine it will be for long though it's a new development <laughs> right across the street and of course toronto is being developed so quickly uh tracy's apartment is on o'connor street which is up in east york it's in kind of an ugly little strip mall uh where her her father victor garber lives 
is there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, I think it captures part. I mean, let's face it, not all of Toronto is beautiful. And it's uh, and this film does some goes some way to capture some of the more uh, unpleasant or, or unattractive parts of the city. Um, but yeah, so so that's uh, Adam McGoyan's uh, Exotica. You know what? I almost wanted to include Chloe on this list, too, because that is really another film of his that's in love with uh, Toronto. But um, yeah, we've talked about that before. So figure we'll move on. And let's talk about a couple of um, Sarah Polly films. Uh, Polly has directed three features away from her, Take This Waltz, and Stories That We Tell, or Stories We Tell. Um, we're going to talk about the first two of these, at least, um, because, yeah, all shot in Toronto, and um, Away From Her is on Netflix from 2006. It uh, Polly's first feature adapting Alice Munro's story, um, and it's about uh, a couple who... Uh, you know, who are elderly and uh, uh, Gordon Pinsent is is the man, the gentleman. He's 76 at the time that he made this film and he plays plays a man whose wife has been taken away from him by Alzheimer's disease, both intellectually and emotionally. And she sort of forgets him, transfers her affections to another man at a care facility where she lives. Uh, the other man played by Michael Murphy, who is a great actor. He doesn't really, I don't think he has a line here, but he's, you know, he's very evocative. It's great to see him here. Uh, Julie Christie plays his wife and um yeah i i uh fiona is her character and it's a it's a heart-rending film it's a film i've really loved ever since i've seen it and it's so great to see julie christie doesn't work in cinema doesn't act that much anymore to see her in this role i guess Polly really had to work to get her to be in it but you watched it for the first time recently Stephen. what did you make of it yeah it's one of those films that i should have seen it when it came out uh and then it was one of those things i kept putting off and uh, maybe I just wasn't emotionally prepared for it. I don't because this film is uh, I. You have you know I I heartily recommend seeing this if you haven't, um, dear listener, uh, because uh, it's it's extremely powerful. The acting across the board. Uh, Olympia Dukakis uh, is also here as uh, the wife of Aubrey, uh, the man who uh, Julie Christie has kind of uh, transferred her affections to, and she's phenomenal in a, in a in a part that you know has to express a lot of difficult emotions and uh just you know just to to ponder you know where love goes as uh, as time goes on this this film uh asks a lot of those questions about you know what are we prepared to take uh, uh you know as as things change as we grow older and it's 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 a lot to chew uh and uh you know it's it's certainly a film that stays with you for a long time after it's 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 sad but there's also you know, because it's so good, you're kind of filled with elation at how good this film is, I guess. It got two Academy Award nominations, one for Julie Christie, of course, but also a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination for Sarah Pauly's work on um, taking Alice Munro's The Bear Went Over the Mountain short story. Uh, and uh, it's it's certainly worthy of that and, and much more. Uh, Gordon Pinsent, of course, is, you, you called him the Dean of Canadian Acting, and uh, he, he's certainly that. He's certainly someone who's been a presence in our lives going back to the, the late '60s, when he you know first started showing up on on television and in uh, in films like The Rowdy Man, and uh, just to to see him play Grant, he just has that kind of authority. I guess he was a former college retired college professor, and he's got he just has that kind of bearing where he just generates so much sympathy with just his screen presence, and you you know he doesn't have to do a whole lot. He doesn't have to get very emotional for you to feel the the conflicting pain and grief that uh, that he's kind of going through in this film it's 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 a very complex mix of emotions and he says so much with so little 
Oh yeah, no, hundred percent. He's he's wonderful, and uh, I actually uh, had the pleasure of interviewing him when this film came out. And Sarah Pauly, who came to Halifax with the film uh, at the uh, Atlantic Film Festival, as it was known then, I spoke to her as well about it, uh, and it was a it was a real pleasure. She was very charming, and uh, uh, even though she, I remember she had a cold at the time, she was you know wanting to give me time and talk about her film and uh, and was very down to earth and. Uh, uh, really, really special, and I think that's part of the reason that I have like a, a strong memory of the film as well, because it was the whole the release of it was was you know notable here, and and uh, yeah, and she got recognized uh, pretty much globally for the achievement of this film, and you know, and that was wonderful. And you know, as far as a Toronto film goes, it's actually more a nine oh five film because you don't see a lot <laughs> yes, of Toronto in it. But um, her next film, Take This Waltz from twenty eleven, is a Toronto picture through and through, uh, even though it actually starts in Nova Scotia. <laughs> yes. I, I remember when I rewatched it, I'd totally forgotten that it begins in Cape Breton. Yeah. Was amazing. Yeah, yeah. And it's a story about a woman, Margot, sort of a little neurotic, played by Michelle Williams, but she's in a happy marriage with Lou, Seth Rogen, but she's falling in love with another man, Daniel, played by Luke Kirby. And it's about how these things can happen in your life, even if you don't want them to. It's about where people deal with the illusions of love. You know, we, we often think that meeting someone and falling in love and getting married and living happily forever, happily after, that, that's something that will happen to us all. And uh, that's kind of an illusion for a lot of people because it just, as we've seen, it doesn't always work out. And it takes, a relationship takes work. And it can be, and if it doesn't work out, it can be devastating to all parties. I don't think anyone gets married hoping that one day they're going to meet someone else and have a desire someone else. But that happens all the time. And that's what this film is about. It's about desire undermining what you think makes you happy. And then the the lessons that desire itself and satisfying desire may not be enough to make you happy. Uh, and there's other characters in this. Geraldine, played by Sarah Silverman who is Lou's sister. She's got her own problems, including an addiction issue. Um, and it's, it's, they're great. The casting is awesome. Once again, Sarah Pauly working with actors is, it's got a, a killer way with it. I mean, it's, this is a film that really, I found really effective in its sort of clear eyed way through human relationships and adult relationships. And of course, you know, the way where it's shot in little Italy, little Portugal, the Royal cinema is featured there on, uh, um, on College Street, where Williams and Rogan's characters go to see Mon Oncle Antoine. Um, all of this shot in midsummer. There's a scene in Trinity Bellwoods Park. Uh, yeah, it's, it is, this is maybe the most Toronto the Beautiful movie I can think of next to the F word, which we'll be talking about in the next segment. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful film. Take this waltz. Yeah, I, I love this film. And, 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 and certainly, again, watching it uh, for the second time, uh, just made me appreciate it all the more. I remember watching it back in 2011 when it came out and being so mad at Michelle Williams character for throwing everything away. And, uh, and uh, for, you know, for as, as one of the, I think, uh, I can't remember if it's Sarah Silverman is that, you know, they talk about like, you know, new things are shiny, but new things get old. Uh -huh. And uh, actually, Chris Rock, of all people, has a sort of a bit about that very same kind of topic, which lang with language we can't use on this show. But um, and uh, it's it's interesting to to watch it all these years later and kind of see the signs where things are kind of falling apart and where the cracks are and and why she does the things she she does and and 
you know, I'm certainly more sympathetic now than I was at the time. I was like, you know, you've got this house and, you know, you, the, the, the perfect life and everything. But, but you know, that horrible cliche that you hear in films sometimes and probably Hallmark movies, you know, the heart wants what the heart wants, which I just make, puts my teeth on edge when someone actually says it in a movie. But, but sometimes there's, you know, there's some truth in that. And, uh, and this film, thankfully, does not use that phrase goes way out of its way to avoid it, but but certainly expresses it in a number of different ways. And it's also great to rewatch it uh, because, of course, the, the the new object of her desire is the the artist across the street played by Luke Kirby, who, of course, is now, uh, you know, earning a lot of attention for playing Lenny Bruce on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a show that uh, I've been quite fond of. And, and especially, you know, his performance is, is so remarkable as, as a, you know, a historic actual character. He's so impressive as Lenny Bruce. But to see him again for the first time sort of, uh, you know, playing a, a normal down-to-earth guy in this film was, was kind of kind of cool because I had no idea who he was the first time I watched this film. And it's so interesting to see him uh, in this earlier role. Yeah, I have seen him a few times. I'm not a, a watcher of The Marvelous Miss Maisel, but it sounds like I should be. Uh, yeah, it's he's great in it. The whole cast is wonderful. Um, and yeah, one of the things uh, mentioning covers of, uh, or or uh, what did I mention? Oh yeah, <laughs> Leonard Cohen in film, in Toronto films. Uh, um, there is an incredible cover of Closing Time by Feist in this film, and uh, which I understand has never been released anywhere but what we hear in the film. I guess Feist was just not interested. She she recorded the cover of the Leonard Cohen song, gave it to Sarah Pauly for the film, and just didn't do anything else with it. So the, the you know three minutes or so of, of the song we hear, which is at a house party, uh, is all that we get of that. But boy, <laughs> does it sound great. And uh, also I want to mention, you know, um, it's great to see Seth Rogen in a role where he you know he has a sense of humor it comes out in the film but it's it's much more straight and he's really good in it you just the heartbreak in his face at a certain point in the film is 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 hard to watch but he's he's so great in it and uh yeah and every time i see take this waltz uh, the the emotional impact of it is is still there it's still very plain to me and it, it's so well done but it's it's also capturing toronto in the summertime it just does a great job of that too Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Now we're on the uh, third segment of Lends Me Your Ears to wrap up our look at movies set in Toronto where Toronto plays itself. And uh, we're going to move on to a Bruce McDonald film. Bruce, of course, has made a lot of great films in Canada, many of them made in Toronto. Um, Picture Claire, I think, is one which not a film I really liked, but so Toronto. I mean, shot so many exterior shot in Toronto. Um, but uh, I think one of my favorites of his is Trigger from 2010, uh, written by Daniel McIver, and I guess originally conceived as a sequel to Hardcore Logo, but couldn't get the, all the actors together and all the, the players, so instead changed the gender of the leads of two um, former bandmates who uh, who don't get along, had a big blow-up, and then are meeting 10 years later to see where they're at. Uh, and uh, Tracy Wright, 
plays Vic, and Molly Parker is Cat, and uh, their band was called Trigger, and uh, they meet. We meet them in a fancy restaurant somewhere, and they immediately fall back into old animosities before kind of making a truce and then going out for a night on the town. So it all takes place over one night, and I kind of imagine this as a sort of Veruca Salt reunion or something. You know, <laughs> like at first it looks like Cat has it all going on. She's got the money. She's living in Los Angeles, but we see pretty quickly that Vic actually has plenty going on too. She's got new music she's recorded. She's got a possible new record deal with EMI. Um, people are excited about what she's bringing out in, in new music. And uh, and then, you know, the, the sort of power dynamics and the relationship dynamics change as we go through. Um, they go to a rock club where Kat is prompted to get on stage with a new band and then Vic watches from the side stage and then she gets drawn on stage too. And you can see the remnants of their beef and their pride and their addictions but in between the things they say to each other, um, it builds a real plausible history between these two characters. There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of sadness for the years missed. Um, but there's also that feeling that even with all the changes, you know, they still recognize each other and they still want to feel things for each other. Um, and it, uh, of course, the film has an extra sadness because Tracy Wright, who was so good in it, she died the same year this was released she was 50 she had pancreatic cancer um and that it makes this kind of this sort of like testimony to her talent this film and that's what's some of what's so you know heartrending about it but it also delivers on its own uh course uh, also sarah Pauly, she shows up for a single scene cameo <laughs> and she's great and she's great callum keith rennie and julian riching so at least able to score at least some members of hardcore logo um back to this film but yeah and you mentioned Lenore Zahn she's also in the film she has a great role in the film so yeah this was this is a really uh, a lovely film uh, if slightly sad yeah yeah it's certainly a great tribute to the kind of Queen Street West uh, musical legacy of, of, of you know bands that that rise and fall over time and then and, and the people who continue to make it and the, the people who kind of fall by the wayside as often happens in music scenes and and it uh, it really gets at that kind of you know brotherhood slash sisterhood that occurs between people who have been in bands because of the, the experience of being on tour and performing and getting that shot of adrenaline on stage every night and uh, you know what that does to bring people together but also kind of tears them apart and and it really gets that band dy dynamic in a big way it was uh, as you say it was intended as a kind of a follow-up to hardcore logo as a, a, a the quote i read was it was kind of a dinner with andre uh, between hugh dylan and callum keith rennie's characters from uh, hardcore logo and i'm really glad that it didn't turn out that way because this film is so wonderful and Molly Parker and, and Tracy Wright are so terrific together. And there was a hardcore logo sequel eventually um, that, uh, you know, that, that didn't quite live up to the promise of, of the original. So I'm glad that this got retooled in such a, a fresh and refreshing way for these two actors and, and for its, its kind of love letter to, uh, to the Toronto music scene at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I, I had a lot of joy watching this film, even with the sadness. Um, and, you know, we get, as you said, we get Queen West, we get Herb Kaplan's Appliance Repair, which is way <laughs> up on Weston Road. We get some Etobicoke. We get a real nighttime tour of the city, which I enjoyed. Um, now, with a final note, uh, our final film of our list of, of Toronto playing Toronto films, let's talk about the F word, otherwise known as What If in the United States and UK. It had a different title, apparently, because um, 
uh, the F word just wasn't acceptable to the the censors down there in um, in the United States. Uh, I interviewed uh, Michael Dows and Elan uh, Mastai uh, uh, when this film came out. They came to Halifax to promote it, and it was great chatting with them. Um, and it's a Awesome. It's a, just an awesome romantic comedy. I might have actually mentioned it when we did our romantic comic comedy episode. I think so, yeah. Because it is it is uh, it is one of those joyous rom coms that we just don't get much anymore. And it came out uh, in 2013 and stars Daniel Radcliffe, the boy who lived, who is now the man who lived. Um, and he <laughs> is. It's another one of his wildly unpredictable post Potter left turns. He plays a Brit living in Toronto heartbroken over a past bad romance who meets Zoe Kazan, a wonderful woman who's living with her longtime boyfriend. They clearly have chemistry, but not enough. I mean, it's just not enough. I mean, they're friends, and it seems to be fine, but there's that tension there because she's obviously in a committed relationship. And somehow managed to be very 2014. They consider the undeniable hipster names of Wallace and Chantry. (laughs) Uh, And there's a scene with a knitting circle in a knitting store, clearly indebted to when Harry met Sally, presuming that no one in the audience maybe the age of the people in the film have ever might have ever seen it but it's really fresh it does great things with uh, with the the rom-com thing mostly because it really devotes a lot of time to supporting characters and uh you know adam driver is the best friend and he's awesome in this he's so much fun uh and full marks also to Mackenzie davis and rafe spall the there are lots of really vivid characters here soundtrack from patrick uh watson and uh yeah it, in some ways it functions as a more whimsical version of sarah Pauli's take this waltz it shares a number of locations including the royal cinema uh on college and uh yeah it's um and the george street diner which is featured yes. prominently that's great um yeah this is uh is is a really charming rom-com which is available on prime right now and uh, people should seek it out if they haven't seen it and they like romantic comedies and of course anyone who's a daniel radcliffe fan should check it out yeah i didn't get a chance to rewatch it for this show but i i did see it as the f word uh when it came out and uh, i think i also interviewed i think michael dow's uh, about the film at the time and uh, it, i think it's probably my first post uh, you know, Boy Who Lived <laughs> performance I'd seen by Danny Radcliffe. <laughs> yeah. I've since seen him in, in many other things, of course. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious to see him in that upcoming weird Romancing the Stone homage with uh, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. Upcoming, but, it's here. Oh, it's, it's here, arrived. sorry. Yeah. The, the, the now released... Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, the Lost City. Lost City movie, um, where he gets to chew the scenery a little bit. But uh, to see him play a down-to-earth, believable, and sympathetic character here uh, was a real treat. And Zoe Kazan, I think I'd only seen her in a couple of things uh, prior to this film, and, and she really comes into her own with this performance uh, in a big way. And uh, she's, she's so endearing uh, in this film, and... and you know, I, I like any film that explores the kind of friendship relationship between men and women and, and, uh, and you know, at least posits the possibility that, yes, they can be friends. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be romantic. Uh, you know, platonic uh, relationships in movies are always kind of dicey and never necessarily treated terribly realistically. Um, and at least, you know, this film considers it to some degree. Yeah, considers it. It doesn't necessarily no. all work out. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's... Uh, it's it's a real charmer, and uh, uh, yeah, Toronto couldn't look more lovely. And 
so concludes another episode of Lends Me Your Ears, this uh, Toronto-centric, uh, Big Smoke, Hogtown-centric uh, versions of this uh, film podcast. We're really glad to be able to watch these movies again. Um, yeah, we got a really good cross-section of movies th- this week. So glad to be able to watch them, bring them to you. Thank you so much for listening to us uh, you know, natter on about it. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, we are available on Facebook. We have a Facebook page. We're also on Twitter as Lends Me Your Ears. Stephen Cook, you have your own Twitter handle. I do, at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I have a Twitter handle as well, uh, Karsten Knox, but it's it's uh, my my film-related Twitter is Flaw in the Iris, which is the name of my film blog. Many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5 p.m. And to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for uh, cleaning it up and making it presentable for the good people. Uh, it's great to do this and talk about movies, uh, and we'll be back again chatting about the movies again very, very soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.